Hello, and welcome back to the Inquisitor podcast with me, Marcus Kauke. Today, I'm delighted to have as my guest, the idiot from Pittsburgh, my good friend, Sean Coyle. He is the president of Sandler Training in Pittsburgh, and that's called Peak Performance Management. Sean, welcome. Thank you for having me, Marcus. It was a pleasure. I'm glad you reached out and looking forward to a lively conversation with us today. Excellent. Sean, I know that everybody invites you on to talk about prospecting. I don't want to do that today. If people want to find out about you, they can listen to you on Sean Lanigan's podcast and various others. Before we go into any detail, I, I want to talk about accountability, peer support groups, and so on. But would you mind giving us a 60-second overview on your background and what got you to this moment in your career? Sure. I would say it was a series of unplanned and unfortunate and unfortunate accidents got me here. I came out of college dreaming to be in comic book publishing. When I realized that there were no comic book publishing companies here in Pittsburgh, uh, which I probably could have figured out while I was going through school, um, I realized that there was nothing else for me to do. Somebody said, try your hand at sales because you seem like you're decent with people, which I was not. And in essence, it basically said, uh, in parentheses, you're not qualified to do anything else. <laughs> I went and sold suits for Tom James clothing, door to door to executives, selling uh, men's apparel, solving the world's problems one inseam at a time. And uh, <laughs> just came to the realization that I wasn't going to continue that path I, forever. I have to ask the question, do most people hang to the left or the right? What we find in Pittsburgh, it's to the left. But <laughs> I think when you go across the pond, is it reversed? I'm not sure. Well, definitely to the left in my case, if you could find it. Sorry, I interrupted. Carry on. No, that's fine. Um, I'm, I'm just trying to, to gauge the level that we're going to operate at on this podcast. <laughs> and I think if we lower that bar, we keep lowering it until we're done. So we're Absolutely. good to go. Yeah, and so okay. I, I, mean, I just realized, you know, five, I think it was about five years in, it was uh, not something I was going to continue to do for the rest of my life to support a family. And uh, I came across uh, through a friend of mine, uh, you know, my uh, eventual first boss in Sandler Training, and mentor John Rosso, joined him as an associate, uh, had the opportunity to uh, become a partner of his, and then ultimately bought the Sandler Training Center here in Pittsburgh from him, actually uh, January of 2020. So is the story true that you ended up just squatting in his office? More or less. Uh, <laughs> the first time I showed up was uh, interesting. I was not one that came from a background of self-development. You know, I was I was a big believer in just copying from everybody else. It just seemed to be the path of least resistance for me. <laughs> I came into John's office for the first time, you know, full of piss and vinegar, wearing a, a ridiculous, you know, thousand dollar suit, you know, at the age of 27 years old and believing that I was the next coming of God for his business. He could care less. And, uh, you know, <laughs> he, he handed me the Sandler bike book can't teach a kid to ride a bike at a seminar. He said, give this a good read, call me in a week, and we'll continue the discussion. He gave me the book. I threw the book in the back seat of my car. I called him a week later. He said, so what'd you think of the book? He said, great book. He said, tell me about the chapter on negative reverse selling. I said, oh my God, John, I made that chapter of itself, the way you can reverse and do it negatively, phenomenal. He said, John, you didn't, Sean, you didn't read the book, did you? No, John, I didn't. Click, he hung up, and that was our first interaction with each other. Excellent. Good stuff. So that then leads us uh, very neatly to the whole conversation about accountability. <laughs> what is accountability? 
So, you know, there's, there's certainly all different types of definitions. Uh, I think for me, accountability is a forum to lean on people, lean into people, uh, support each other, uh, pick each other up, knock each other down when necessary. And, uh, you know, just kind of maintain focus and, and, you know, recognize what it is that is important to you, uh, make certain commitments around what's important to you, and then have a willingness to have people talk to you straight and say, listen, here's where you're screwing up. Here's where we can celebrate. And ultimately, you know, for me, it's turned into a forum where I'm less interested in my results and more interested in not letting my forums down. And I think that's something that, that you know, uh, where I think I've matured in this business is early on accountability was hit the result. Today, the account, you know, accountability is don't let your teammates down. It's really interesting because I'm seeing increasingly a shift around capitalism generally as well. So this will make sense in a moment, looking by the puzzlement on your face. There's a Henry Ford quote that a business that's solely focused on money is a bad business. And I, I think when you're young, when you're first starting out, it's all about the result and it's all about the transaction. But the best businesses that I know, and one of the reasons why I loved, absolutely loved my time in Sandler, was the network. The network always felt like it had your back. And when you turn up to conference, if you turn up and you do a shitty conference talk, there are 300, 400 people in the room generating $2,000 to $4,000 a day. You have a bloody great responsibility to turn up and blow the roof off. When you're producing content, you have a responsibility to elevate the thinking. And I think great businesses look after their customers first. Sorry, actually, I think they look after their people first. They look after their customers. And the customers, we exist because of the customer. And money is a secondary byproduct. And I think in terms of accountability, taking that paradigm further, accountability is something you do to yourself but get the help of others. And your idea of leaning into them and challenging them, getting stuck into good constructive conflict, I think is really key. So talk to me about the tough, the tough love side of accountability, because that, that's the first area I'd like to explore. It's funny. I think that the tough love comes from a, you know, this mutual agreement and understanding as to what we're trying to accomplish, right? And so you know, if, if we can use Sandler vernacular, right, the upfront contract has to be, listen, we're going to say things to each other that are meant to help and provide guidance and be constructive. And if you don't like how it's being said, tough crap. Don't be here. Don't be part of accountability to have your feelings protected. In fact, don't worry about your feelings. You know, I remember sitting as a guest, not as a guest, but as an observer, I was watching a baseball camp which is the advanced version of cricket, I think, on your side. I thought it was Brandis. It's a much more complicated game, baseball. But uh, I remember my son sitting through a, a baseball camp, and there was a coach that he really responded to. And many of the kids did not. And he was a very direct and candid person. And, you know, he talked a lot about, guys, you know, spend more time in the batting cages, less time on your cell phones, talk to your parents. But he said, when you receive praise or criticism or direction from a parent, a teacher, a coach, the first words out of your mouth should always be, 
thank you. Right. And, and he said, you don't have to like the way somebody's providing to you praise or criticism or direction, but you better pay attention to the message because it's only done out of love, out of, you know, this, this care to help somebody get better. And, and, you know, I heard that I thought, man, you know, how does that's a great message, even in today's environment, right? You know, Absolutely. everybody's going sideways on, you know, every single feeling is getting hurt. And you know what? Listen to the message. Don't try to filter out how that message is being delivered because not everybody's a great communicator. But if people are coming from, you know, a, a, just a caring place and you know that they're coming from a caring place, just pay attention to what's being said to you and, and don't worry about getting your feelings hurt. Listen to that message first. This then talks to something that I've been very passionate about for the last 10, 15 years, which is this whole concept of the need to be vulnerable. Vulnerability is an act of courage. Uh, many of you will have heard of me say this before, but it, it comes from the Latin word vulnerabilis. And that means to put yourself in a position where you may be wounded, where you may be hurt, and you do it anyway. And, you know, Roman legionary would rip off their armor and go into battle. Crazy, perhaps, but definitely courageous. And uh, I think accountability requires you to subsume your ego and put yourself out there knowing that you may not like what is being said. Sometimes you will. It's not all negative. But if you do not want to improve, then avoid accountability. And we see this an awful lot in BNC players. BNC players play the I'm good enough or better not get noticed. The A players inevitably are inviting criticism. They're inviting feedback. They, they go to their customers. If they balls up a sales call, they'll ask the customer, you know, my fault, forgive me, I screwed up. Teach me, what did I do wrong? Where, did I, where can you, I, I improve? And I think that's a huge differentiator between the 2% who are A players, or half a percent, depending on which industry, and the rest. So what is it that an accountability group fosters within that community? I think it's the, the the sharing of best practices. What I have found, you know, in the last couple of years, and again, as I've matured and have learned, and you talk about that concept of vulnerability, you know, early on, even in the Sandler business, Marcus, I felt like I was part of certain groups because I wanted to be the smartest person in the group, right? <laughs> it was an opportunity for me to have even a small form to be, oh, that that guy right there, he's got it going on. And what has shifted is I've now realized I've got to be the weakest person in the group. Because if I'm not the weakest person in the group, and I think, and, I, and I'm part of two mastermind groups just inside the Sandler network, and I look at each of these individuals, and I'm the weakest guy in this, you know, the weakest person in these groups in a lot of different areas. And we don't all have the same business model. We don't need to. And we don't have to agree on everything. But I do know that I'm learning from them. I have an opportunity to say, I'm hurting here, guys, or this doesn't feel right. Or, and I know that whatever they're going to say is going to help me overcome that. It really has, what I've learned is become this opportunity to lean against somebody, right? And be able to take the rest and not carry the burden all the time. You know, whine a little bit. Somebody's going to say, stop your whining, get over it. And you say, yeah. Maybe I ought to stop my whining, get over it, and start working. This, again, is a quality that I see 
that differentiates the top performers from mediocre and weak performers, which is the willingness to admit weakness and the willingness to ask for help. I remember probably for the first 10 years in the Samba Network, I really struggled to ask for help. And it frustrated me because it held me back. And because I, I had a quite a good early start, the first three years rocketed and then uh, made some terrible decisions, stuck in a funk for about four years with a lot of head trash. And I wouldn't ask for help. And that is a genuine waste. It was a missed opportunity because there were people all around who would be who would have been willing to help. So what's your message to people who don't ha- feel that they deserve to ask for help? What do you mean by feel like they don't deserve to ask for help? They might have imposter syndrome. They might feel that they aren't worthy. I'm not worthy script. It could be any number of different similar bits of head trash. I think everybody in any position has probably at some point asked for help somewhere along the way. Right. And now now to do it consistently does take, you know, uh, you know, that I'm not sure I know how to answer your question, but I do know that, you know, when I look around our network, and I look around even our network of clients, one of the themes of people that are not reaching the top level is that inability to ask for help, right? It's that absence of intellectual humility. Yeah. You know what? I got this. I can figure it out on my own. And, and I don't know that you can force somebody to that position. I think they have to come to that realization on their own. And it might mean that they have to participate in a variety of different forms of accountability till they find the forum that makes them feel comfortable, right? To be able to have that conversation. You, you've sparked a thought on in me, which is I, I think a lot of it comes from self-compassion. It's the, the recognition that you have the right to be imperfect. Brene Brown's work is really interesting around shame. Her research suggests that shame is a byproduct of childhood shaming. And the net result of that is that you're always trying to do it yourself. You you go above and beyond where you should uh, reasonably without asking for help. So you spend 80% more time to get the last 2% out of fear that someone will criticize you. And then this speaks very much to one of the most important themes within Sandler and within TA, which is the strength of your self-concept. Because to me, I think that was really, really was Sandler's genius the recognition that you will only perform to the level that your self-concept will allow. So So you got me thinking there, Marcus, if you're willing to not compare yourself to others, I think that's a a piece that can help in that vulnerability, right? If I'm not looking at Marcus saying, man, I got to be that, right? I got to be like that, right? Or, or, Or I'm always comparing myself to somebody else. I think you can't get past that barrier, right? You know, because if, if, we got to look at ourselves and say, how can I be the best version of me, not some version of Marcus or, you know, Sandler or whoever? That's a really, really vital point. So, Sean, experience has taught me that so many people operate out of the drama triangle and uh, ego thrives on drama. So you have the victim, the persecutor and the rescuer. And all too often, people occupy all three positions of the drama triangle with their internal narrative. And that prevents them from being vulnerable. It prevents them from seeking help. It prevents them from asking questions. And it often will drag them into the trap of perfectionism. 
So tell me, in terms of the work that you do, working with your clients, helping them to get through those psychological barriers, can you give us some uh, hints and tips maybe on the questions that people should be asking themselves in order to start to self-diagnose and maybe give themselves some breathing room to be able to free themselves from the, uh, their own shackle? I think a good question is, why am I doing this? And what I mean by that is more maybe too global, but why did I react this way? What triggered me to feel this way? Why did I make that statement? Why did I use that technique? You know, what made me do something? And I think we have to ask that question first. Why am I doing it? Am I doing it to get my ego needs met, right? And I think a lot of what we do that doesn't encourage vulnerability is about, and I think you said it earlier, it's about getting ego needs met. I use a Sandler technique, perhaps not out of sincerity, but I use it because it makes me feel good, right? Well, that's getting my, my, my ego needs met. And a lot of the question needs to be, why did I do it? What triggered my reaction? And what am I giving up? Right. And, and I got to tell you, one of, one of the, and it's a silly video, it's a, it's, and it's a simple book, but Joaquin de Posada wrote a book called Don't Eat the Marshmallow Yet. I love the story. I love, uh, I love some of the videos that they did. And it talked about a key to success. And one of the keys to success, what they found through this study with children and then following these children through early adulthood was if you're able to suspend immediate gratification, you're going to ultimately have greater success than people that can't. And so I think about all the things that we do as leaders and as salespeople, a lot of times we suspend immediate gratification by not doing something, by not asking that question by not asking for help, right? If I don't ask for help, well, I'm getting immediate gratification because I'm not having somebody tell me what I did wrong. There's a lot of ego in there. And, and, and I think it's really figuring out why am I doing these things? Why did I take that action? What am I getting out of it short-term? Because it really comes down to, I can get short-term immediate gratification, but I may experience long-term regret. What's really interesting is you triggered a, a thought that was 180 degrees from that. And let me give you where my take on this. Most salespeople listen to find a gap so that they can ask their next question or make their next statement. And the ability to defer the gratification of asking that next question or proving your point, allowing yourself three to five seconds after someone has finished speaking, to digest it and reflect, I think has become one of my sales superpowers because that three to five second gap allows them to continue talking. But most importantly, it ensures that I finish listening to the end of what they've said. And then I can process it, I can reflect it back, and I can ask a better question as a result. So there are two, there's two parts to that same coin. So there's the wanting to avoid looking like a fool or being criticized or feeling judged at an identity level, even though more often than not, actually what they're talking about is your role. Um, so for example, at the moment in our household, we have the perennial tidy your room. 
at which point we get the huffy face, the throwing the hands up in a tantrum and then storming off. It's not a criticism of who you are as a human being. It's an observation that your room is a shithole. Um, and, you know, uh, in the UK, we have this thing where you do pinch punch first day of the month. So I went to do that to my eldest daughter a couple of days ago. Couldn't get into the room because trying to get through the floor was just too much of an effort. So I had to stalk her till about 11 o'clock to find a time when she was out of the room so I could get her, which shows just how mature I am. I think you've touched on a really important point here, which is that sometimes the best lessons come from reflection. And I think one of the key things that I found from accountability within Sandler is that you get a different perspective. And if you look at Matthew Syed's book on diversity, um, he talks about diverse teams outperforming non-diverse teams. And having access to a huge network like you and I do means that we can get masses of different perspectives, which means that we can see the whole picture. So talk to me about how um, working on a regular basis with an accountability group, with people from diverse commercial backgrounds, different age groups, different regions, allows you to improve your perspective. I think it gives us the chance to, A, just ask questions, right? Hey, I'm thinking about doing this. What have your experiences been around this area, right? And, and so I get somebody to say, I tried it and I didn't like it. And here's why I didn't like it, right? And, or I did it and we succeeded with it and here's our best practice. So for, I, I think a lot of it is about gathering all these extra points, data points, right? So rather than just saying, I can make this decision on my own, here's a decision I'm thinking about making. So has anybody ever made similar types of decisions? And so that I can gather different data points to make the best possible decision. Uh, and sometimes that means, you know, not acting on something that in my feeble brain, I thought was a genius idea. And then, you know, I got three other people saying, where in God's name is that coming from? That's ridiculous. And you're just going to waste time. You're chasing a purple squirrel, this, that, the other. So it really is about, again, I come back to something I said earlier. Uh, for me, it's been the greatest format for plagiarism. And if I am nothing, I am uh, a plagiarist. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Talent creates and genius steals. Uh, you give credit at least once and then it's yours, uh, which I learned from you, funnily enough. <laughs> You've now had your credit. Um, <laughs> there it is. So, <laughs> so th this, again, is really interesting because I'm seeing things like Clubhouse appear on the scene. I don't know if you've come across it or you're involved mm -hmm. in it. Clubhouse is kind of like Twitter or Slack, but on voice. Very noisy. I haven't quite worked out how to make the best use of it. But one of the things I'm seeing the top performers in my network do is they pick a topic, then they invite people, and then they debate the crap out of it. And those peer forums are incredibly powerful. With my community, Sales of Force for Good, I'm looking at how we can uh, leverage this. So if anyone out there has managed to crack the code when it comes to Clubhouse, please do DM me, get in touch, LinkedIn, whatever. But I'm curious, in terms of those peer forums and those networking opportunities like conference and your regional groups, how does that melting pot of ideas affect the overall performance of the group? I give it a specific example. Matt Nettleton, you know Matt. Right yeah, yeah. out of uh, Indianapolis, Indiana. 
you know, he's been a, a, a great friend in the network to me over the years. He and I, I'm going to go back probably two, three months ago, woke up one morning and said, you know, we get a lot of good training from each other, you know? So, you know, there's lots of internal resources to the Sandler network. You got, you know, the coaches calls, PC teleconferences, role play Wednesdays, but there's so many great forums for learning, but they're teaching moments, right? Somebody has an agenda, they've got a slide deck, right? They're, they're, they're making a presentation on a topic and it's wonderful, right? And you've got some of the smartest minds in the world contributing to that within our network. And we woke up one morning and said, you know, what feels like it might be missing is this opportunity. And we, we affectionately said an opportunity to knife fight with our peers, right? Really get into the moment that I came, I just got through, right? I had a prospect, you know, tell me that they wanted me to send them a brochure and call them in a month, right? Something silly like that. And we said, you know what? Every Friday morning at 7.30, we're going to host Friday knife fights. And it's going to be for 30 minutes. It is rapid fire exercises. Right? It's high speed adult. Our agreement with the group that shows up is don't show up and worry about getting your feelings hurt. Right? We're going to hear your, pro- your issue. We're going to process it quickly. Matt's going to give his version of you know how he would address it. I'm going to give my version as to how I would address it. We may ask some other people like a Jerry Weinberg or a Jim Wilcox to you know weigh in on the topic and then boom we're going to hit the next one. All right? And it's going to go fast and it's going to go furious and you know the first time we did it we had like three people sort of uh, Sarah, you know uh, kind of you know sneak in, oh let's see what this is all about. Well, you know we're up to like 35 45 people a week now and it's growing. And what we're hearing, the feedback from folks is this is a great opportunity for me to hear the concentrated aspect of Sandler, not burdened down by having to train a topic. What's been really fun about this is Matt and I have two completely different styles, and it's a different style from a Jerry Weinberg and a Jim Wilcox. But when we weigh in on an issue in this fast fire knife fight, we always end up at the exact same place. Right, the same conclusion to the conversation. The style is different, and so to me, that's you know that's another form of peer learning. And I'm encouraging my clients to create that form internal to your organization. Pick a morning every morning and voluntarily show up and simulate things, and make it fast and furious. Right? Don't make it training, but make it you know true simulation, if you will. I don't know if that makes any sense. It makes a lot of sense. And I'm going to throw out an offer. You can say no. But within the community, that's exactly the kind of thing that I want to do because the the purpose of the community is to create the conditions so that the next generation of uh, top sales performers and sales managers and leaders are equipped. And I think one of the areas that most salespeople shy away from is that fast and furious uh, simulation role play. Would you be open to maybe joining me on a couple of those for the community and seeing if we can then take that globally? Yeah, I'd love to. Absolutely. I think that'd be a lot of fun. Um, Okay. I'll sort that out in the next couple of weeks. Okay. So when it comes to finding one's own voice, I think what I've seen a lot of over the years is people tend to regurgitate the technique and they listen to the recordings of David Sandler or whoever it happens to be that your sales guru is. And then they try and be them. And it comes across as nauseatingly, excruciatingly inauthentic. So talk to me about that. 
I think finding your own voice is really comes through practice and repetition. So for me, I think I want to memorize a talk track. I think of a selling conversation as a series of sound bites. There's all these little steps, right? And we're trying to put this puzzle together, you know, through this conversation to ultimately, you know, determine whether or not, you know, myself and a customer have alignment and we can help and support one another. I mean, and, and so it's a series of conversations that get you there. And it's a series of sound bites. To me, it reminds me of, you know, a, a great stand-up comedian. Well, a great stand-up comedian doesn't write a 60-minute set. They write 25-minute sets, right? Little bits that have a common thread that once it's all over, it gets pulled together. But, you know, they've got a three-minute bit here that they wrote from beginning to end. And then they want to connect it to this three-minute bit over here and that three-minute bit over there. So I think within a selling methodology, whatever methodology we happen to love Sandler, I think within that selling methodology, we got to figure out what are the bits? Let me memorize those bits, but then let me internalize those bits through practice. So I can use my words, my language. So, I mean, I think the first thing is I do have to have that good memory. I have to be able to memorize exactly how Marcus would engage with a gatekeeper. Right? And once I've memorized that, I can now say, how do I do it my way? Right? How do I take the concept of what he's trying to accomplish and deliver it in my voice? And that, only, that requires practice and instant feedback. I can go out and play golf and I can teach myself to play golf and it might take me 30 years to get there. But if I've got a golf instructor standing next to me, it might only take me 30 days to get there because they're giving me instant feedback. I'd love to be able to swing the ball like a, a Tiger Woods, <laughs> but I, I or swing the club. I, I mean, I'd love to be able to swing the club like a Tiger Woods or a John Rom, but I can't be those guys. I don't have the same body type. I don't have this. None of it's the same. I have to understand what they're trying to accomplish on the tee box, right? And then take ownership of that. And then through constant, instant feedback, you know, how do I do that? How do I hook the ball around that tree? Don't try to be like Tiger doing it, but understand what Tiger's trying to accomplish and then figure out how do I do it with my body type, my swing plane with that constant, instant feedback. I don't know if that makes any sense. It does. I'm really curious again. Because what, one of the things that I've seen over the last 20 years or so is that people often get enamored and fixated on the technique. But what they don't do is they don't start at the first principles, the foundations of how that technique evolved, the psychological underpinnings, and why those techniques in the right context used appropriately are so much more effective in the hands or mouths of uh, one salesperson versus another who is just using the technique. So talk to me about the importance of getting back to first principles and values when it comes to selling. It comes to what is it that I'm looking to accomplish and how am I attempting to accomplish that? And so one of the things that I've said often over the years is you know, everything that you do you know, in a sales conversation should have the underlying intent of enhancing an environment of trust, comfort, and credibility, right? Mutual respect. Everything that you do, every question, statement, pause, right? Letter, notes, anything that you do in that selling conversation from good morning to thank you for your business should have an underlying intent of increasing 
that equal business stature. And so if people are using technique to get somebody to do something, they're using it against the prospect, not with the prospect. And, and, you know, we've heard the David Sandler stories of, you know, if you're using technique against the prospect, you're a bully. And nobody likes being bullied. Right? If we're using the techniques that make the most sense in the moment, right, we're trying to find alignment and enhance that communication. And so, you know, you know, I was just talking to somebody the other day, don't say something or don't do something that you don't fundamentally believe is the right thing to do but you're doing it simply because that's the next page in the book, right? Or that's the next chapter in the manual. I, I always um, make the association. Technique on its own is like giving someone an iron bar. Technique underpinned with the right intent, which is bias safety and helping them achieve their outcome and the right values and ethos that you will always work on the basis that you are there to serve the customer, to be relevant, that you are there to earn their trust by being rigorously authentic, by living a set of values that mean that the customer's success is paramount, that you are partnering with them to solve their problem. When you behave like that and you have win-win or no deal, front and center with the customer at the heart of everything that you do. That's like taking that iron bar and then over time sharpening it with a whetstone and you end up with this razor sharp blade. And the technique on its own, I think, is just a bludgeon. It's a blunt instrument. But technique with the right intent, with the right values and bias safety front and center, that suddenly becomes you moving from being a salesperson a peddler of product, to being their partner. And I can't stand the term trusted advisor because I think it's, been, you know, it's a great term in theory, but I think it's been hackneyed and overused. I think we need to earn the right to be their trusted partner. And it's us and them kicking into an open goal against their problems. And that we are the first port of call. Whenever they have a problem, they phone us. So, Talk to me about the kind of relationship that you want with your customers. I think you're kind of hitting it right, you know, the nail on the head there, right? We, we, we want the customer to kind of view us as that go-to resource. And so I don't want a customer to say, hey, I just hired five new salespeople. I want to put them in a program. I want a customer to call me and say, hey, we're considering adding five new salespeople to the organization. Can we discuss the strategy right, around whether or not that's the best move for us at this moment? And then once we've discussed that strategy, can we talk about what's the proper criteria we should be using to identify the right sale? Right? That's the conversation we, we, we should all strive to have first is, you know, don't call me because you want to put somebody into training. Call me because you're even thinking about making a move that's going to grow your business and you value my opinion around that move. So, Sean, experience over the years, I, you know, it's taken me 35 years to come to this conclusion is that whenever people are looking at per making a purchase, they're always looking to create value, certainly in a B2B space. And it's our job to help them find the best way to transform, to help them show them where they need to invest, to maximize the impact and value for them, for their people, for their customers. And they want to make the best possible decision. 
They've got finite resource. And it's our job to help them make the best future investment so that it serves their, prop, uh, their needs now, but it's also fit for purpose over time. And it helps them to join the dots, to maybe align their business, help them drive efficiency, to help them manage money, time, and risk. And I know that uh, you were speaking to our mutual friend, Carlos Garrido, and he said that our job is to help customers make the best possible decision. Given that that's the case, what would you advise somebody who knows that they can probably make a sale, but it's not necessarily best for the customer? It's interesting. We, we were having this discussion in, in, the, in, in a mastery class uh, with Carlos here was a question that was posed. Is it a good decision to buy a product or a service going through an RFP process? To the person, the answer to that question was, it's really not a best, it's not a good decision. There were some great examples where, you know, people on the call said, you know, I've purchased things through an RFP process before, and I never really got exactly what I wanted. It was close enough, but it wasn't what I wanted. And you know, we might have saved some money. And, and so even right there, right, if, if somebody were to approach me and say, you know, we're, 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 we're considering investing in sales training over the next three years. And, um, you know, we, we want to look at Sandler training and two others. And so we're going to go through this RFP process. I believe that we could make that sale because I think in comparison, we're going to be better, right? We're going to stack up better than our competition but that's not the best decision for that customer to make. That's not how they should buy a service like this. And so I have to ha sort of stay on my ground, right? And have conviction on what do I know to be the best ways for an organization to make a decision, right? And I know it's not a beauty pageant, right? I know it has to have alignment with senior leadership. They have to, you know, touch and hear and, 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 and experience the content, right? In a meaningful, right? There, there's, I know how to find that alignment. I know how to help somebody protect their investment. And so to help them make that best possible decision sometimes means I'm going to bow out. And if you're going to keep pushing me to stay in, then we're going to have to change the dynamic. We're going to have to change the rules of this because here's what I simply know. If you go through an RFP process, you may or may not come to the conclusion to work with me, but you're not ultimately going to get exactly what you need and want. Interesting. I tend to agree. I think people don't really understand enough about how buyers really buy. Have you read Bob Master's book, Demand Side Sales? No. It's a must read. Bob, I think, is one of the three freshest minds in sales, uh, modern selling today. He's an engineer, was trained by uh, W. Edwards Deming in his apprenticeship, and he thinks very differently. But his map of the customer journey is that we make space for an idea or a product or a service. We're not ready to buy, but we make space for it. Then we move into passive looking. So we trip up over a piece of content. We notice their logo. You know, we just occasionally engage with it. As the problem grows, then we start to look actively. And this is often where there's an RFI or an RFP, which is fake. It's just the gathering of information state. Then when the problem becomes more acute, then what the customer does is they start making trade-offs. 
So they look at Sandler, they look at Miller-Hyman, they look at Huthwaite or whatever, and they start to make these comparisons. And they compare like for like, apples for oranges and so on. And they make trade-offs. Well, Sandler does ongoing reinforcement. Miller-Hyman does uh, workshops and boot camps and so on. And eventually, through the disqualification of the stuff that they don't want, they end up making the decision. And I think that's really what you've described there. So they make a compromise. Now, if on first use, it doesn't meet or exceed their expectations, then it doesn't turn into habit. That's where the um, disappointment spiral starts to kick in. And But if they do meet expectations, then they start to use it more and more. But that's where most salespeople stop. And so I have a question um, about whether or not the structure of the sales role is fit for purpose nowadays. Because most new business salespeople essentially practice drive-by shootings. They turn up, they make the sale. The only ever, uh, other time you ever see them is when they're coming back for a renewal sale. But often they just throw the problem over the, uh, the wall to customer success or the account management team. So there's no continuity there. I'm really curious to get your take on whether or not it's time we rethink um, the role of salespeople and whether having the SDR, the new business, AE, uh, account management and customer success in that format is really still fit for purpose or ever, if ever was. I think one of the things that we're we're starting to see again we 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 get such a grand opportunity to touch so many different types of businesses and business yes. models even you know internal to our organization I think we're recognizing the power in the pack right hunting and and you know skinning and and eating as a group not you know as a you know a, a series of silos because there's there's people in the organization that may not have that dedicated sales role but could be of immense value somewhere at the beginning rather than all the way at the end. So, you know, I think trying to figure out what your pack should look like, which ultimately kind of loops back to the beginning of our conversation, Marcus, around the idea of accountability, right? And and having a group of peers working on solving collective problems. I I think that's a really interesting direction. I uh, just interviewed Fred Copestake, who wrote a book, Partnering with Selling Skills, sorry, Selling with Partnering Skills. And what's really interesting, the more I see the market fragment, and certainly within technology, the stack is becoming hyper-specialized. And if you're selling security, you're going to be one of 20 vendors within an enterprise's technology stack just around security. Yeah, and there are probably another 40, 50, 100 other vendors involved across their entire IT estate. And unless you can collaborate, not only with other people within your own organization, but also with partners, with competitors. You know, I see Microsoft and Google, uh, fierce competitors working in partnership in certain accounts. And I think that is a trend that we're going to see more and more of. And I fundamentally believe our success in the future will be determined by our ability to collaborate and especially collaborate with the customer. Because I think it's historically sales has been an adversarial game. And I know this is something that you'll have uh, strong opinions on as well. Let's talk about the P word, procurement. 
Because I think fundamentally, we've always been brought up to see procurement as the enemy. Now, the majority of procurement operations, I still believe, are tactical. And they still operate on the basis that their job is to squeeze sales for every penny and beat their suppliers up. Now, there's maybe 10% that are genuinely strategic. And those procurement departments, I think we need to seek out because they're thinking longer term. They are the CFO's right hand. They're thinking about total lifetime value. They're not thinking about the individual purchase price. So again, RFPs, I get it. Most of them waste of time or not good, not best for the customer, even though they think that they're getting the best deal. But in terms of your thinking about how we as a profession should go out and court partnership with procurement, I'm really curious to get your thoughts on that. I really think it comes down to what seat at the table does procurement have within an organization? And so does the C-suite have them sitting at the kids' table or does the C-suite have them sitting at the big boy table, right? If they're sitting at the kids' table, they've been tasked to be siloed and, and squeeze, you know, pennies. If they're sitting at the big boy table, right, they're part of the overall vision of the organization. And so, uh, you know, what you said earlier about, you know, let's, let's find ways to partner with the organizations where procurement is strategic to the business. I think that's who anybody wants to work with. But I think organizations also have to look at their procurement and make their own decisions, right? Do we, do we give them a, the right seat at the right table? Or, you know, are, the, are they these, you know, dark gnomes sitting in a cave squeezing dollars out of, you know, out of checks? Well, so I, I got nothing against them if they're strategic. But I don't know that they gain or garner the respect within organizations that they should deserve. I've met a couple who have blown me away, genuinely blown me away, because the metaphor I use is it's like going on a night bombing raid. Now, you're flying overhead, dropping bombs, and every time a bomb hits, there's a little flash of light and a, 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 a little pop. And strategic procurement is like the pilot of that plane. They get to see all the different bombs going off because people are lobbing their problems over the wall to them. And they're getting to see, they're getting to join the dots. Now, the tactical procurement team, all they ever get to hear is you know, the, the clatter of the stone uh, hitting the floor next to them. So they don't really get to see that bigger picture. But I think what is really needed is uh, a shift in thinking so that as a profession, we become more strategic and we start aligning ourselves better with the C-suite, and the different parts of the business so that we see it as a system with lots of joined up parts and help them all come together. But by and large, that doesn't really happen in most sales organizations because they're just focused on hitting their quota. So what advice would you give to sales leaders, to CROs, VPs of sales in terms of shifting their thinking and their belief system to make sure that they are more aligned and they, they have more of a partnership mentality? I think if it's, if it's in, in terms of partnering with organizations and making the sale, invite procurement to the discussions early. Treat them with the respect that they want to have uh, be treated with, right? And so, you know, if I'm making the sale to the C-suite, I want to say, you know, bring me your chief procurement officer to these discussions because it's going to be important for them to see your vision, hear your vision, understand what you're trying to accomplish through this type of an initiative, whether we're buying 
phone systems or furniture or you know, software or sales training, doesn't matter. But if they're part of your process, involve them at the beginning so that they know what you're hoping and trying to accomplish so that we're not arm wrestling with each other at the end and playing this game of telephone. Yeah. Okay. Makes sense. Look, Sean, we've come to the top of the hour. Tell me something. What are you struggling with? What are you wrestling with at the moment? I think for me, it just again, assuming and having bought this business, uh, being an effective leader and uh, you know, learning the nuances of truly inspiring a team, not motivating a team, right? I don't think a role of a leader is to motivate. Motivation comes from within. Absolutely. But it's finding a way to inspire and uh, you know, make sure that there is hope you know, even in the dark times, right? We've all been through the dark times. We've found in some ways to pull ourselves through. And, and so, you know, I, I've got to shift my thinking to not treat the world like me, right? And, and not believe that the world is motivated like me, inspired like me, behaves like me, right? But understand what are they trying to do and be more inspirational to keep their spirits high. That's really interesting. I, I've, I found that myself. And um, I, I've been very fortunate. I've uncovered a tool called Motivational Maps. Have you come across them? Mm-mm really very, very insightful. They allow you to get under the skin of an individual's motivation. Now, from a coaching perspective, really powerful, but also to recognize your own motivation because what it will help you to do is identify where you may come up short when trying to get the best out of an individual within your team. And it also helps you to see the group dynamic when you look at the entire team. Very powerful in recruitment, but especially powerful as a coaching tool. Okay, tell me this. You've got a golden ticket, and you can go back and advise the idiot Sean, age 23. What choice bit of wisdom would you whisper in his ear that he would have probably ignored, but would have stood him in good stead throughout his career? I think it's uh, surround yourself with with peers that are stronger than you right at the beginning, right? Put your ego off to the side. It's not about you, Sean find that collective and ask for help right out of the gate. I wish I would have been asking for help when I was 22, <laughs> you know, and, and not have waited so long. Yeah. I was stubborn. I, I, right? I'm Don't with be you. stubborn. It took me to my mid thirties to ask for help. Stupid. So what, what are you being inspired by in terms of what you're reading, watching, listening to at the moment? So, you know, I, I, I might've mentioned this a, a while back. Um, I love stand up comedy to me. A, I love to laugh, right? And, you know, I do my best to get other people to laugh. And sometimes only I think I'm funny, so maybe I'm just doing it to get me to laugh. But I love the thought behind stand-up comedy, right? I I love how they think. I love the level of preparation that they put into, you know, putting together a great set. And, you know, it's, it's, it's telling the story. Right. And being able to, you know, bring that story together, you know, from beginning to end when it seemingly doesn't look like it's going to work, you know, being able to handle a heckler off to the side. And and there's nothing spontaneous about that. You know, heckling to me is like objections in sales. There's only about 10 unique objections. There's only about 10 unique heckles. So if I can be really good at, at, you know, that that concept of prepared spontaneity and know what I'm getting myself into with an audience, I can have some fun. I just finished reading Bossy Pants from Tina Fey. Um, I, I just I, I like how comedians think because there's 
in my opinion, you know, if we think uh, transactional analysis, there is a place uh, for the child uh, in, in a sales Absolutely. Yeah. And, and, you know, it's got to be the right place. But, you know, we should all be having some fun with each other, too. Excellent. So who are your favorite comedians? Yeah, I'll probably isolate myself from a whole bunch of your audience. But, you know, I love the, the Louis C.K.'s and yeah. the uh, Dave Chappelle. They're great storytellers. Louis is probably one of my favorites. I just think he's a phenomenal storyteller and just knows how to make a point. Sometimes it's a point that people don't like, but it certainly makes you think when he makes those points. Have you ever come across a guy called Frankie Boyle? No. He's a Glaswegian comedian. He was very polarizing. I I went on a comedy course to learn how to do stand-up, and the uh, teacher asked me who my favorite comedians were. And I said, Frankie Boyle, and says, well, just as long as you don't want to be him. Um, So I thought, yeah, okay, I'll stick with that. You know who's another favorite of mine on your side of the world is Jimmy Carr. Yeah. Oh, he's fabulous. Suzanne and I went to see him between the lockdown, first and second lockdown. Okay. Uh, It was absolutely outstanding. Super smart. Yeah, absolutely. So, Sean, this has been really insightful. Thank you so much. I hope we can do this again. And we'll do the Friday Knife Fight Knife Fight live sometime as well. So tell me this. How can people get hold of you? Sure. Pretty simple. You can find us, uh, you know, on our website, www.peakperformance.sandler.com. Certainly feel free to uh, connect with me on LinkedIn. Our phone number here in, in, in the States, in Pittsburgh, is 412-928-9933, 412-928-9933. But, uh, yeah, the website, LinkedIn, lots of places people can reach us. Excellent. Sean Coyle, thank you. Marcus, really appreciate the time. Thanks for having me. My pleasure. So this is Marcus Kauke signing off once again from the Inquisitor podcast. If you're the owner or the CEO of a tech scale-up that's between 10 and 50 million turnover, and your goal is to grow your business and achieve real, sustainable hypergrowth, and by that, I'm talking 40% plus per annum compound year on year with highly engaged and highly productive employees and clients who stick with you year after year and bring their wealthy friends, then let's schedule a time for a brief conversation. You can reach me at marcus at laughs-laughs.com or DM me on LinkedIn. In the meantime, stay safe and happy selling. Bye-bye.